At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, Edge of Sports listeners, don't forget that you can sustain this show by going to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. What we have this week is another extra, another Dave Z talks about stuff. So this week, I'm going to be speaking about my own thoughts about the South Korean Olympic Games. So so please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod, and you get all kinds of extras that frankly are just too much fun for words. So please support the show because you get something back. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to Jules Boykoff, author of the book Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics, about everything going down with the South Korea Winter Games. Also, I've got some choice words about why the Philadelphia Eagles, so many of them, plenty of them, are going to skip the White House visit this year. Some of their quotes will absolutely peel your eyeballs back. And I got you Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, some Kaepernick Watch, and much, much more. But first, let's talk to Jules Boykoff. So, Jules, you and I have been commenting on the Olympics for some time, correct? Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Um, Oftentimes together on the same panels and writing the same articles like we did this last week in the LA Times. Um, and we, we have a shared analysis of the Olympics that they tend to bring debt displacement, hyper-militarization, bad for the environment, and that those issues don't get discussed nearly enough. So, so Jules, I'm hoping, can you apply that, please, to South Korea? What are we seeing there in terms of debt displacement, militarization, the environment, like what, what is the what is the tally? What is the cost in South Korea? Well, first of all, I would say that those trends you described are indisputable. I mean, they've been just happening in Olympics after Olympics. There's no question about it. And so, if you start with spending, the costs of the Pyeongchang Olympics have doubled over time, and we see this time and time again, where the bidders say it's going to cost one amount of money, and then the costs just go through the roof by the time the Olympics are actually delivered. In the case of Pyeongchang, they said about $6 billion. By the time the Games rolled around, it was more like $13 billion, so more than double. You know, and that includes a stadium. And, and I'm just going to interrupt you real quick. I'm yeah. just going to interrupt you real quick because I just want – I think sometimes we get a little bit inured to um, the difference between $6 billion and $13 billion. Now, imagine if you were going to buy a house and it was a $200,000 house. And when it was time to close, you found out it was Mm $500,000 and how utterly screwed over you would be. Right. And you'd be I just wanted to put that out there. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. And you'll be paying off that house for a long time. And that's typically what happens with people in the host country. They pay that bill forever and ever. I mean, you look at the sort of extreme case of Montreal in 1976. They didn't pay that thing off for 30 years. So 
it's quite typical to leave a huge bill at the end of the day that the taxpayers in the host city and host country have to pay for. And, you know, they're going to have to look hard at some of the things they've bought in South Korea and Pyeongchang. I mean, they spent around $110 million for a stadium that they're going to use Never. four times and then rip down. I mean, incredible environmental degradation to make that thing happen. And then there's no future use for the thing. So, I mean, that's one thing. If you just stick to money and and I like to move beyond it, as I know you do too, Dave, because money's only part of the story. You know, you have to look through some of the big promises of the Olympic honchos. They're always talking green, but that at the end of the day, they're not walking green. They're just kind of ripping through the environment. We saw it in Rio with the big promises around Guanabara Bay and water, which never came to be. They never cleaned up that polluted water. And then now we're seeing it in Pyeongchang. And this is common with the Winter Olympics, where they just clear-cut forests to make way for the ski runs that are required to meet the Olympic standard. And so, may, may I ask P- you a question? Mm-hmm. May I ask you a question? I'm gonna. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Jules, but mm-hmm. um, I, I just I, I've read several places, and you and I wrote in our LA Times piece about the tearing down of a 58,000 trees of a sacred forest. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain for our listeners though what that means, like a sacred forest, mm-hmm. and sure. why it's so so incredibly hurtful to do something like this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so it's a 500-year-old tree stand. So this is old-growth forest, for starters. And according to the Chosun dynasty, it was sacred to the people of that region. So when they cut that down, they offended a lot of people from that area. And there were actually protests around that. And it's not just that it's sacred, actually. It's really important in terms of the ecosystem of the area. There's protected species that live there, like the flying squirrel, and the links that are being displaced just for 15 days of skiing or so. Um, there's trees that only grow on that portion of the Korean peninsula, and they're being cut down to make way for the ski mm. run. So when you get into the details of it, it gets even more horrific. Wow, that, that that's very intense. So that's some of the environmental degradation. Uh, what are we hearing about militarization in these games? Obviously, there's all of the concern slash saber rattling about North Korea, and we'll get into that. But what kind of militarization and quote-unquote anti-terror measures are we seeing? And who, in the end of the day, pays the price for that kind of militarization? Right. Well, for starters, South Korea says that they're going to deploy 60,000 police at the Olympics each day. And that includes 50,000 soldiers. So there'll be a really intense militaristic sheen at these games. In fact, it'll make Pyeongchang one of the very most militarized security forces in the history of the Olympics. And so who usually pays for that is the everyday people, because they're getting all sorts of tactical drones, special CCTV cameras, facial recognition systems, and they were not going to put them back in the boxes and return to sender when it's all over. They keep these things and they use them for everyday policing. I mean, the Olympics are basically a huge ATM machine for the security industries and the police forces of a country. And we've seen it time and time again. And so South Korea is doing it now. We saw that Rio did it ahead of the Olympics there. We saw it in Sochi as well. The trick is that, you know, the world has become kind of a massive geopolitical tinderbox that the Olympics used to sort of leverage the the ramping up of militarization to protect the spectacle. And so we're definitely seeing mm-hmm. that. And there's there's some reality to it for sure, Dave. I mean, South Korea, there's, obviously, there's a long-term 
disagreement between North Korea and South Korea, and those sentiments are very real. But certainly the, the local police are leveraging the moment to get all they ever wanted. And let's talk about North Korea, South Korea here. Um, first and foremost, North and South marching into uh, the, the stadium together as one. So I think the people in the, in the Olympics, they love that vista because it shows that the Olympics can be a vehicle for peace. What do you think about the Olympics possibly being something that pushes North and South to ratchet down the tensions that have been so aggravated by Donald Trump? Well, I think in the short term, it's positive because tensions were at a really high level ahead of the Olympics. So there's no question in my mind that in the short term, it's a good idea to have this happening. I think it's actually a lot more complicated when you inject the U.S. part of it and Donald Trump is Twitter thumbs. But, you know, this is a historic moment. Now, the teams have marched in together behind a unified flag in the past at the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney, 2004 in Athens, and then again in 2006 in Torino. So that's not new. But what is new and interesting is the mixed hockey team, players from North and South Korea that are playing on the women's team. That That is new mm-hmm. for the Olympics. We've seen teams in back way back in 1991 and table tennis and a youth soccer tournament. So, so that's new. Um, and and that seems to be symbolically positive. I would just say one little thing, quibble I have with that. And I think we've seen the coach of the South Korean hockey team. She's spoken out. This has been absolutely foisted on her. And I think we have to read a little bit of sexism into the decision to make the women's hockey team be the ones that carry the flag together instead of the men's, which was apparently not on the table for discussion. And when you look at the people who are negotiating this thing for the unification teams from the North and South is basically a dude ranch. I mean, it's all guys making this decision that the women's hockey team Mm. are going to do this. I'm I'm not saying it's not going to be powerful symbolically and perhaps important, but it is the women that got it foisted on them. So, I mean, I think this has been a real boon for Kim Jong-un. He's made the absolute most of this. Let's not forget. I mean, he basically just sort of suggested the idea on January 1st, and South Korea was quick to roll out the red carpet to make this happen. I mean, after all, in the short term, this is kind of the best missile insurance that South Korea can get. There have been threats for a long time by North Korea to attack. And so there are positives. That doesn't mean it's being uh, treated with total glee in South Korea. There's been protests around it, some serious unhappiness across the political spectrum, and a lot of skepticism. After all, North Korea has been pointing their missiles at the South and making serious threats for a long time. So it's complicated, um, but I would say in the short term overall, it's positive, definitely, that they're not lobbing missiles. They're instead going to you know, be participating in sport for a couple of weeks. Yeah, my personal analysis of this is that the reason why South Korea jumped on this so quickly is precisely because they're desperate to look for an avenue to organize diplomacy outside of the Trump administration because of the way Trump, you know, first of all, doesn't even have an ambassador to South Korea and has completely decimated the State Department. So it's this effort to Mm -hmm. find some way to use diplomacy by other means because Trump does seem hell-bent on war. Yes, I totally agree with that. I mean, um, Moon Jae-in is walking a political tightrope here, and everybody knows it. The honest people in the International Olympic Committee will tell you as well Uh, that you have unstable leaders involved in this situation. And Trump is definitely one of them. And, you know, God knows what will happen if he gets his Twitter thumbs cranking during the Olympics, what he'll say to try to undermine 
sort of incipient friendliness between the Koreas. But I think you're right. They're trying to figure out a path that doesn't necessarily include an embarrassingly bellicose United States. Okay, so let's get to the big old question here, because I get it all the time, Jules. Um, and I just would love to hear how you answer it. Um, when I do interviews about the Olympics, I am asked about what being the proverbial turd in the punch bowl. Like, life is tough. <laughs> you know, this is the only time we really get to engage in sports, like, say, everything from figure skating to luge to the bobsled, you know, to curling. I mean, sports that really, in non-Olympic years, are treated with um, with complete, if not disdain, at least, ob- ob- obliviousness. And so I, I ask you the question, I mean, do you watch the Olympics, or what do you say to people who are wrestling with whether or not to boycott their viewing habits over the next couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, I do watch some of the Olympics. There are athletes who I really admire. Typically, they're the ones that have a little bit of political impulse behind things they've said or, or what they represent. There's no question that the Olympics really raised the profile of women athletes. I think that's really important. And we'll just see a, a many, many amazing women athletes. And, and I can get behind that. I just think that we can hold two complex ideas in our mind at the same time. I mean, the Olympics are this Janus-faced behemoth. On one hand, you got these amazing athletes who uh, are inspiring on many levels. On the other hand, you've got this horrific, grizzled underbelly that we've been talking about today. And so... You know, I think we can both celebrate the athletes and appreciate them while critiquing the the sort of uglier machinations of the Olympics. It's hard to hold it against a loser from the United States or from wherever, Switzerland, Germany, who has put together their money over time, saved every last penny to try to realize their dream. This is their one moment in the sun. It's kind of hard to disrespect them individually as athletes. So I think we can walk that line between the two. But I do think also we need to be relentless in our criticism of the Olympics in terms of its ugly machine side. I don't think we need to give them a break on that. The International Olympic Committee parachutes into each city and they just make their way with that city. They do whatever they want. They get the five-star treatment. Then they jet off to the next place. And it's, it's disgusting. And it needs to be stopped. And so I would say we can do both things at the same time. Mm. And then the other big political story out of these games is, of course, Russia. As we're having this conversation, the appeal by Russian athletes who've been banned, I believe it was 65 of them, uh, who've been banned from these winter games was denied by a judge, so they will be banned what do you think about the banning of the Russian athletes mm-hmm. for doping? Well, yeah, I think that we need to take a step back when we think about Russian doping and realize the fact that the International Olympic Committee knew about Russian doping way back in 2013. So I think we need to point the finger at the International Olympic Committee for dragging their feet like nobody's business. I mean, the the whole story has sort of like Cold War spy novel thriller elements to them, you know, mm-hmm. passing urine through these little holes in the wall. You got this guy now hiding out, Gregory Rudchenkov, a whistleblower hiding out in the United States under federal protection. I mean, it's Jeez, easy to get really that, into that stuff. That guy better not cook any uh, minute eggs. <laughs> no, he shouldn't. Um, 
so, I mean, there's all that. I think the International Olympic Committee deserves a whole lot of credit for their foot dragging and creating a crisis when they could have dealt with it a little bit more quickly. Um, but, you know, let's not forget that we're still going to see 168 Russian athletes in these games. 177 participated in Vancouver just eight years ago. So it's not a huge dip after all the big kerfuffle over doping. Mm. And I think there's people who follow this carefully who believe that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, was pretty tactical about trying to come out like really strong, like they were going to do these lifetime bans against all these Russians, something they knew would never stand up in court. And guess what? It didn't. I mean, the Court of Arbitration for Sports said, you can't do that. You can't do lifetime bans. And some people say that the IOC knew all along that it would never stand up in court. And so they could act tough and get what they wanted, Russian participation. And, you know, one other thing about this, they're participating as Olympic athletes from Russia, not really as neutral athletes. You know, previous athletes have been neutral, truly neutral. They're going to say, you're going to see it all through these Olympics, Olympic athletes from Russia. I mean, it's basically the same thing. And so they get special treatment. And if they're good Russians during the Olympics and they follow all the rules, they might even get to march out behind their flag at the end of the game. So the penalties have been quite minimal, really, against Russia. There's been a lot of tough talk by the International Olympic Committee, but very little action, really, at the end of the day. Uh, Do you see any uh, Western bias by the IOC against Russia, double standards in that regard? Or is that aspect of it overblown? Well, I think we always need to check ourselves when we start talking about Russia for bias that, I mean, living in the United States, it's, it's always striking to me what politicians can say about Russia and get away with, with no questions asked about it. And so, I mean, I feel like we always need to sort of check for a sort of knee-jerk anti-Russian bias. But I think within the Olympic movement, you might actually have the opposite in the sense that Russia is a huge player in the Olympic movement. And so the IOC really has no interest in truly punishing Russia. They want to keep them in the game. I mean, especially the case with the Winter Olympics, where they tend to really thrive. And so I think, if anything, it's sort of a fake outward push against Russia, but really maybe a bias inside the IOC to keep them on board. Wow. That's deep stuff right there. And I think, Jules, just to wrap this up, you've been terrific. I mean, your book, which I cannot recommend highly enough, is called Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. And I wanted to ask you if you foresee anything happening in these games on the protest side that could Hmm. make a future edition of your book. Hmm. Well, I think the moment is ripe for some athlete activism. After all, President Trump sent Mike Pence to head the delegation at Pyeongchang, and Pence is rabidly anti-LGBTQ. And so that's already um, created some ire among athletes like skater Adam Rippon and uh, Gus Kenworthy, two out gay male athletes who have spoken out against Pence. And so to have Pence leering from above saying all these terrible things about gays and lesbians and trans people in the United States and has the horrific track record. I think we could see principled athletes making a stand with that. Same goes for Trump. I mean, he has attacked African-American athletes time and time again. And so we have a number of African-American athletes participating for the United States in Pyeongchang. And many of them, including Alana Myers-Taylor, a bobsledder, have said that they're maybe not necessarily happy to just be the role model athlete. They might like to speak out. They've hinted at that possibility. 
And, you know, it can't just be African-American athletes speaking out against Trump. It would be really great, I think, to see some serious solidarity among white athletes to speak out against Trump. We've seen Lindsey Vaughn already speaking out. It would be interesting to see if she spoke her mind at these Olympics as well. So I think the conditions are right to see some serious athlete activism. And I'm hopeful that they will. I think the moment is right. And I'm, we'll see, I guess, Dave. What do you think? Um, I think that the Winter Olympics we've seen historically has always been a little less hot when it comes to protest mm-hmm. than the summer games. Um, and so, you know, you have to factor that in. Uh, but at the same time, I think with the way what's happening in the world right now, um, it could come from any country at any time. Just calling for peace, for uh, for freedom of movement, for refugees or immigrants, I think all of that is on the table um, at these games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's more a statement about the world than the political than the 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 political strain of these individual athletes. Uh, mm-hmm. I just think the world itself is imposing itself on the games to a uh, very very sharp degree. So we will find out. That's that's my short answer. Well, folks can um, look forward to more writing from Jules and I throughout these games. We're trying to put together a piece on Russia as we speak for the nation. Um, that was requested by uh, by my editor there, Jules, and um, so that that'll be a very exciting thing to put together. Um, Jules, is there anything else you want to plug? I know you're speaking at a panel in New York City coming up. Can you speak about that? Yeah, thanks, Dave. You know, I'll be in New York City on Thursday, the 15th of February, with two amazing speakers, Minky Warden of Human Rights Watch and Amira Rose Davis, a scholar of race and sports and politics at Penn State University. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'll be in D.C. at American University the following day, Friday, the 16th of February. So anybody in D.C., 3 o'clock at American University. It'd be great if you want to come out and continue the conversation about these issues. Fantastic. Jules, and what are you listening to music-wise these days? Let us know. Well, if I'm trying to get pumped up, I'd say a go-to is a tribe called Red. Ah, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, they're fantastic. And, um, if I'm relaxing, I guess I like to listen to Thievery Corporation. It can sometimes get you pumped up, but it can also help you calm down, get a little writing done, and just relax. Dang. I've never heard Thievery Corporation associated with chilling out. I'm going to have to look <laughs> deeper into their catalog. <laughs> I'll send you a couple tracks to get you going. Please do. Please do. Jules, great to hear from you as always. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, thank you, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks. That's Jules Boykoff. The work he does is utterly indispensable. People should absolutely read his book, Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. We'll be back right after this. And now... I've got some choice words about why the Philadelphia Eagles are not exactly feeling a visit to the Trump White House after winning the Super Bowl. Okay, look, the NFL's time-honored tradition is a simple one. You and your team go to the White House after winning the Super Bowl. This goes back decades. But whether it happens in 2018 is officially an open question. 
Following a season where the current White House occupant Donald Trump cursed players in an Alabama speech and said that they should be fired if they weren't forced to stand for the anthem, it doesn't look like the Philadelphia Eagles will be playing the NFL or Trump's game. Wide receiver Torrey Smith said that plenty of players would not accept the president's invitation, including himself. Smith's reasons, given to CNN, may stand the test of time. He said, For me, it's not just about politics. If I told you that I was invited to a party by an individual I believe is sexist or has no respect for women, or I told you that this individual has said offensive things towards many minority groups, that this individual also called my peers and my friends SOBs, you would understand why I wouldn't want to go to that party. Why is it any different when the person has a title of President of the United States? That answer is so lacerating because Smith is basically saying, it's not about politics. It's just about the president being a racist, sexist jerk, but not politics. This is a perfect articulation of a view shared by many people who see politics as what happens on Capitol Hill. But a collective antipathy towards this president runs a lot deeper than what comes out of the mouths of congressional Democrats. Another Eagles player not playing Trump's game is defensive end Chris Long. The Charlottesville native was challenged by Trump lickspittle Boris Epstein on social media about why he wouldn't go and try to dialogue with Trump about his concerns. Long spent this year donating his paychecks to fund social justice scholarships in Charlottesville following last August's deadly Nazi march. He listed off the questions he'd ask Trump if they actually did dialogue. Who were the fine people on the side of the Nazis and KKK that gathered in my hometown the day a terrorist put 20 people in the hospital? Why reference the hatred and bigotry on many sides that day? Why didn't you immediately denounce them? Then he said, I already know the answer. None of that is political. I'm not interested in a dialogue with someone who I have to ask those questions of. Damn. Then there's safety Malcolm Jenkins, who said that he was not interested in a photo op, but would meet with Trump if he wanted to talk about the actual reasons he and many others had staged protests during the anthem, racial injustice. Jenkins might want to get a Snickers bar, because that meeting ain't happening anytime soon. As these players have shown the world that being an activist is not something that will prevent you from winning a Super Bowl, it is worth remembering the player who sparked all of this off, the banished quarterback Colin Kaepernick. He animates all of this, even if the organization led by Malcolm Jenkins, the Players Coalition, which negotiated an $89 million payout to community organizations from NFL owners, has not taken up Kaepernick's employment as a cause. As Tory Smith said, I have a lot of respect for him. You know, Colin Kaepernick is a person that history is going to look back on like he's a legend. He's a legend to me, and I'll have his back any day of the week, end quote. They have Colin Kaepernick's back, for sure. But Donald Trump and his shock troops won't respond well to this White House slight, so those of us supporting their vital dissent had best watch their front. This podcast is sponsored by The Nation magazine. Just go to thenation.com slash subscribe. This week's issue, which you have full access to online if you subscribe, is amazing. We've got a full article by Stacey Mitchell on Amazon, and they're setting cities against each other for the purposes of opening Amazon HQ2. Also, Bryce Covert on labor and monopoly power, David Dayan on Warren Buffett's expose, 
And George Zornick interviews Elizabeth Warren, and he does not do a soft interview. George is very good at his job. So please go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And remember, when you support The Nation magazine and its indispensable journalism, you also support the continued existence of this podcast. And now, back to the show. Now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award comes from a listener named Shane Thomas. And I just wanted to read it out to everybody. Shane wrote, Hi Dave, I have a potential nominee for your Just Stand Up Award. The former Everton and Wales soccer player Neville Southall. For a spell in the 1980s, he was arguably the world's best goalkeeper, and he did an interview with the London Times. His thoughts on topics like homelessness, the working class, and the conservative government are sentiments you may agree with. And thank you so much to Shane, because the London Times is behind a paywall, and my man Shane over here actually uh, cut and pasted it into the document. And yes, he does say remarkable things about class, about privatizing the National Health Service, and about building a fighting movement against it. It's really good stuff. So thank you, Neville Sothel. Here's a little taste of what Neville Sothel said. He said, quote, The people who run towards the shit we get in our lives get treated the shittiest by the government. The Grenfell Tower, the firefighters did not back off, and yet she, that's Theresa May, the, the conservative prime minister, could not even talk to them properly. Neville also talks deeper talking about what it is to be working class in London, saying they had lots of jobs when the mines were here and lots of jobs when the steel was here. You take those two big things away, what's left? So it's strong stuff here, and folks should check it out. And thank you so much to Shane Thomas for sending that in. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to Mike Pence, the vice president of this country. Uh, Mike Pence went to the Olympic uh, ceremonies to quote-unquote lead the U.S. delegation, even though as we've covered on this show, there are members of the U.S. uh, Olympic team who would not even meet with Mike Pence because of his homophobia, uh, namely Andrew Rippon, the skater, uh, who was amazingly sharp and why he would not dialogue with Mike Pence. Now, Mike Pence, why is he in the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award? Because he did sit his ass down. So when the unified Korean team entered the Olympic Stadium, everybody in the VIP box stood up except Mike Pence and his wife, Karen, who I think he is allowed to be alone with. Uh, So as David Steele, good friend of the show, columnist for the Sporting News, tweeted, So to dramatize his political stance while at a sporting event, the vice president chose not to stand as a gesture of protest. Wonder where he got that idea. So Mike Pence, you sat your ass down. I defend your right to do it. But guess what? You are a disgusting, bleeding sore of a hypocrite for attacking NFL players for doing the same and for grandstanding in Indianapolis. So Mike Pence, not only did you sit your ass down, stay seated. If you like Edge of Sports, you got to check out Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. It's progressive news without the boring parts. Every week, host John Wiener takes a step back from the daily media deluge to talk to some really smart people. People like Naomi Klein on climate change or Keith Ellison on a strategy for the Democratic Party. And he's even had me on the show to talk about sports and politics. Catch a new episode of Start Making Sense every Thursday at thenation.com, on iTunes, or wherever 
you get your podcasts. And now it's time for Kaepernick Watch, where we speak about the latest comings and goings with colluded against NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick. The thing I got to throw down with this week is the money that's being thrown at Jimmy Garoppolo, Matt Stafford, and Derek Carr. These are the three highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL, with Garoppolo now being number one with $27.5 million a year. Keep in mind, please, if you don't mind, that Jimmy Garoppolo has only played seven games in his career. Derek Carr's only played 62 And none of these three quarterbacks, Garoppolo, Stafford, or Carr, has ever won a playoff game. Hell, Garoppolo and Carr have never played a playoff game. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick went to a Super Bowl and an NFC Championship game. It is just so absurd. And it's it's shames and disgraces, not just the NFL, but our society, that we allow someone who knows how to do a job to not be able to do that job for the simple reason that he wants to stand with his community. That's absolutely an absurdity. And we will continue to stand with Colin Kaepernick, both on this show and in the streets. Well, that's all for this week's episode of Edge of Sports. Thank you so much, Jules Boykoff. Thank you to my producer riding solo, David Tigabu. Remember, you can support the continued existence of this podcast by going to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And don't forget, you got all kinds of extras there when you sign up. It's a lot of fun. Also, don't forget, you can listen to back episodes of the show, including my shows from 2016 from Rio. If you want to know more about the Olympics and what's wrong with them, just go to www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, don't forget, you can always email me at edgeofsports at gmail.com. If you've got your own suggestions for just stand up or just sit your ass down, we'd love to hear them. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. 
With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.